Let's pray together. Almighty Father, will you grant that we may, um, as we come to your word, uh, our prayer is that you would grant our hearts, our minds, to be like good soil, where seed comes and it takes root and, and it grows and brings forth fruit. Grant, grant that, um, save me from saying silly things, save us uh, from um, hearing things that we ought not or discarding things that we should receive. And in all things, grant us to see Jesus Christ very clearly. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, uh, please be seated, and um, if you would keep page 14 in front of you, we're continuing uh, in Psalm 119, we're looking at this stanza, which is the second stanza in the psalm. Um, At the beginning of every single communion service uh, here at Emmanuel Church, and, and broadly within the Anglican tradition, every single communion service begins with uh what might not seem like it on the face of it, but I think a very provocative prayer. And we call it the Collect for Purity, which doesn't sound provocative, um, but it is. We already prayed it. Just listen to it again. It goes like this. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. Now just pause there. Does that feel uncomfortable? And it goes on. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, can you see why it's a provocative prayer? It's a provocative prayer because we're asking God, there's something very invasive about it. We're inviting God uh, into someplace very deep within who we are, into our desires, and we are asking God to modify those desires. So we're saying, God, I, I know you know my heart. I know you see what I don't want anybody else to see. You know what I like. You know what I love. You know what I hate. You know what repels me and what attracts me. Modify those desires. Some of the deepest places of who I am so that I can end up loving you like you want me to. Now, The reason that every single communion service, at least in the Anglican tradition, starts with that prayer is that all through Scripture, the transformation of our desires is just central, central to following Jesus. All right, why am I saying all this? I'm saying this, like I said, because we're continuing our series in Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, it's the largest uh, chapter in the Bible, each stanza kind of has a little bit different focus. All of them are focused on the value of the Word of God, but each stanza has a, takes it in it with a little different emphasis. And the emphasis today is on our desires. And here's what we're going to find. Our stanza here today says that the Bible protects us and guards us and keeps us safe by making us delight in God and in His Word. It has to do with our desires. Let me put the whole thing differently. Um, According to scriptures, your desires will make you or break you. If you love the right thing, that will lead you in life to very, very good places. But on the other hand, the scripture says that if your desires 
are for things that lead to destruction, then there's a terrible uh, um, risk that, that that will lead you precisely down that road. And Psalm 119 says it's the word of God that guards us, that keeps us safe by modifying our desires so that the thing we want above all else is God himself. So I could put it bluntly, God's word guards us with delight. Now that's what I want to show you. Now, take a look at verse 9. Verse 9 says this, How can a young man stay on the path of purity by living, or perhaps more accurately, guarding it according to your word? A couple uh, things. That word pure, sometimes we think of that in a, in a oh, kind of pure white snow, uh, perfect uh, uh, obedience uh, according to a kind of exterior set of standards. That's implied, but it really is a heart word. It's the same idea as in the Collect for Purity. It means um, that we would be wholehearted. To be a pure-hearted person is to be wholehearted, single-minded, fully committed to one thing. And so the question is, how do we get that full-focused, single-hearted devotion to one thing? If you've um, seen the uh, Equinox um, gyms, right? They all, they're outside big, big letters that says commit to something, right? That, that, how do we do it? Well, verse 9 says, by guarding it according to Scripture. Now, I want to fill this out, and, and as is often the case, there's a backstory. And as almost always the case in the Old Testament, the backstory is rooted in the story of Exodus. We talked about this last week. We're going to do it again this week. Um, you remember the story of Exodus. So Israel, they're enslaved in Egypt. Then God intervenes. They weren't really looking for God. Um, God intervenes. God defeats Pharaoh, leads them out of the superpower of the day, um, leads them, you remember, through the Red Sea, all of those wonderful things. Now, by any measure, if you think about that story, by any measure, God, you know, is being pretty good to Israel, right? Um, if any nation, if you didn't experience that, if any nation had experienced that, any nation would have great reason to be loyal to a God who has just accomplished all that for them. Here's the funny thing. Strangely, in the story of Exodus, Israel ends up being bizarrely fickle in their relationship with God. Do you remember that? So, for instance, within literally days of coming out of Egypt, the Red Sea, the whole thing, imagine you saw that. Within days of that, uh, Israel, en masse, becomes persuaded that the God who led them out of Egypt cannot be trusted, that he actually has led them out into the desert in order to murder them. And then God responds to this by saying, no, hey, I'll, listen, I'll, I'll feed you miraculously. So he allows the manna, you remember the manna, to accumulate, and they eat every day exactly what they need, and he shows them his goodness. And yet, in spite of that, even after they're miraculously fed, precisely when they were grumbling against God and convinced that he wanted to kill them, then just a few weeks later, uh, they create the golden calf. They trade the God who rescued them from Egypt in for a shiny statue, and they start talking about wanting to go back to Egypt. They are phenomenally fickle within the matter of days and weeks and months. 
And that pretty much continues throughout the leadership of Moses. So Moses leads them for 40 years. He does his best. Um, he teaches them. He leads them. And they get a little better over time. But in the end, they, in the end, God speaks to Moses after 40 years of leading them. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, and he says this. He says, When I have brought Israel into the land flowing with milk and honey, and when Israel has eaten and are full and are fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And then he says this, very important, for I know what they are inclined to do even today. Now catch that word inclined. Because what God's saying to Moses at the end of Moses' 40 years of leading Israel is he's saying, listen, Moses, Israel has a consistent inclination a consistent desire, a consistent preference to run away from God and serve other gods that are destructive. They were predisposed to look at God in spite of the fact that they had seen his mercy and grace in more vivid ways than anybody else had ever seen in history. In spite of that, they were predisposed to look at God and see everything that God has done and nevertheless still conclude that God cannot be trusted and that they're better off running the other direction and serving other gods or serving themselves or whatever it might be. Now, all of that's background, but look back at verse 9. The psalmist knows this story. The Old Testament is a series of this pattern repeating again and again. And time and again, when Israel's in trouble, they're in trouble because their hearts have inclined away from God, run away from life, and ended up in one sort of death or the other. And the psalmist knows that. And so the psalmist wants a different path. And so he prays. He says, listen, God, in so many words, I'm young, which probably means I'm dumb which is, all things being equal, probably a good assumption. And he says, God, keep me on the right path because I can't even trust that my desires are right. And he decides to guard himself, when it says by living according to your word, that it's better to say guarded with his word. He decides to guard himself with his word. Now, look at how, what that means. Look at verse 10 and 11. 10. How, how is he going to guard himself according to the word? He's going to seek the Lord with all his heart. Verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart, or I have stored up your word in my heart. The image is, is of, a, of a storehouse full of God's word in his heart and in his mind. Now, what he's doing here is he's protecting himself by filling his mind with Scripture. So he's, so to speak, self-educating. He's studying, he's reading, he's memorizing, he's internalizing the Bible in order that when he's faced with temptations, when he's faced with difficult uh, seasons of his life, he'll have the resources to know how to interpret it and how to recognize God's goodness in spite of temptation to do otherwise. But here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is that the psalmist can have all sorts of data about God in his brain and still, this is very important, and still have a heart that inclines away from God. 
He needs a deeper work of grace in the level of his heart and his desires. And that's why he prays. Look at what he prays. Verse 10. Don't let me stray away from your commandments. Verse 12. Teach me your decrees. Verse 11, I've stored up your word in order that I might not sin against you. There's this feeling of, of, uh, of, of danger. And he's praying, work in my heart and change me. Modify my desires. He's praying a prayer just like we prayed at the beginning of this service. Modify my desires and make me see, Lord, that you are beautiful and preferable to everything else. Now, here's the remarkable thing. The remarkable thing is that we get to even watch God answer this prayer in this stanza. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 is the turning point. Before this, in the stanza, there's a feeling of struggle and danger. After verse 12, every line is driven by this delight in who God is and delight in God's word. His heart changes, and the turning point happens when he sees the beauty of the Lord. Look at verse 12. All of a sudden, God answers the prayer and he begins to worship. Praise be to you, O Lord. And then the last bit of the prayer, teach me your decrees. And after that, the tone changes. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Um, one of the things that this means, and this is going to sound a little odd, but if you're a Jesus follower... <clears throat> The mo one of the most dangerous things in your life is your own desires. Let me explain this a little bit. When I sin, every time I jettison following Jesus for something else, whatever it might be, I do that because at least for a moment, I become persuaded that the sin is better than Jesus, right? So, Sin is not just uh, doing naughty things that are fun, right? That's, that's eating chocolate. That's not sin, okay? Um, sin is preferring something else besides Jesus. And the reason it's a problem is because we were made, designed to know Christ. That relationship is the thing that is meant to animate all other aspects of our life. If, if you're not a Jesus follower, that's going to sound very strange, but that is the big audacious claim that Jesus' followers make. We were designed to know Jesus, and that relationship animates everything else. But when we prefer something else, what we do is we take this other thing and we put it in the place of Jesus. And because Jesus is the source of our life, if we cut ourselves off from him, then everything in our life begins to deteriorate and self-destruct. Now, obviously, when you're in the midst of temptation, um, it doesn't feel destructive, right? That's the whole point, right? Temptation hooks into our desires and says, I will meet your desire in a way that you can't find elsewhere. Come on. And this is where Jesus holds out just a glorious promise, of, promise for us. See, the Old Testament, like we were just saying, teaches that our hearts are inclined to resist God. But the Old Testament also makes a series of promises that says that one day God's going to uh, reach down into our desires and rewire us. So, for instance, Jeremiah chapter 31 says that one day God is going to write his law on our hearts. 
Or Isaiah chapter 30 says that um, God himself will become our teacher. And part of how he does that is he reaches into our desires and he changes us so that we desire him. And when you get to the New Testament, what you find out is that this is part of the reason Jesus died. We talk regularly about Jesus dying in order that we might be pardoned from our sin, which is absolutely right. But it is also true that Jesus died in order to purchase the Holy Spirit for us. So that when you become a Jesus follower, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes into our desires. So to speak, he, he answers the prayer that we pray in the Collect for Purity. The Holy Spirit comes into our desires and allows us to see the beauty of Jesus Christ in a way that we haven't seen before. He allows us to see how compelling and attractive and glorious Jesus is. And then we begin to see that Jesus is better than everything else and so that we want to follow him. Now, go back to verse 12. Because what happens in verse 12, when, he begin, when the psalmist begins to worship, praise be to you, Lord, what happens there is that this, the psalmist is getting a little advanced taste of that promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't mentioned, Jesus isn't mentioned by name, but nevertheless, the psalmist is beginning to experience what it is that Jesus offers to us in full today. Try to illustrate this a little bit more. Um, have you ever read uh, The Wind in the Willows? If you haven't, or if you haven't read it for a long time, read it. Read it today. Anyways, there's a wonderful story that's generally left out of most editions today, and I can grumble about that to you later. And it's called The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Um, not just a Pink Floyd album. And what happens in this story is that you've got um, rat and mole. Rat and mole are two talking beasts that are very good friends. And uh, they, t they set out one night because uh, one of their good, f f another one of their friends is the otter, and the otter's son has gotten lost. And nobody knows where he is. Lost in the forest, lost in the river. And so Rat and Mole set out on uh, the river uh, on a, in a boat to try to find the lost otter cub. And so they set out, they search all night, just before dawn, um, it seems that it's all hopeless. They have no idea where this little otter is. And then just as dawn begins to break, something happens. Story time. A bird piped suddenly and was still. And a light breeze sprang up and sent the reeds and bulrushes rustling. Rat, who was in the stern of the boat, while Mole rode, Rat set, sat up suddenly and listened with a passionate intentness. Mole, who with gentle strokes was just keeping the boat moving while he scanned the banks with care, looked at Rat with curiosity. It's gone, sighed the Rat, sinking back into his seat again. So beautiful, so strange, so new, since it was to end so soon, I almost wish I had never heard it. For that music, that piping, has roused a longing in me that is pain. And nothing seems worthwhile but just to hear that sound once more and to go on listening to that music forever. No, there it is again, he cried, alert once more. Entranced, the rat was silent for a long space, utterly spellbound. 
Now that it passes on and I begin to lose it, he said presently. Oh, Mole, Mole, the beauty of that music, the merry bubble and joy, the thin, clear, happy call of that distant piping, such music I've never dreamed of. And the call in it is stronger even than the music is sweet. Row on, Mole, row, for the music and the call must be for us. Now, it's a very mysterious story. But it's a brilliant little image of what happens in the heart of a Christian. Because what happens is, rat and mole, they don't know where to find this little otter. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know the way. But nevertheless, spoiler, sorry, they find the way. But they find the way not because they've got a, a map with directions, but because this mysterious music hooks into their desire and pulls them along so that they follow the beauty of the music and it leads them in a straight path. They, find, they get to a place that they never could have gotten on their own. Now I say that because it's a little bit about how the Holy Spirit guards us and guides us by causing us to delight in God's word. Um, just watch how it unfolds in the psalm. So verse 12 is the turning point. The psalm sees the Lord's goodness. For us, we see who Jesus is in all his compelling beauty. And then verse 13, that delight makes him want to describe the Lord's beauty to other people. Look at verse 13. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. See, he's no longer saying, I'm not sure about the word. I want to follow the word, but I'm not sure about it. Now he's saying, I love it, and I want to tell other people about it. You know, you'll never want to share Jesus with anybody else until you delight in him. And on the other hand, when you delight in him, you'll find yourself wanting to share him. Look at verse 14. When you delight in God's word, it reorders what you value in life. Verse 14. I rejoice in following your statutes like one rejoices in great riches. Because it's like winning the lottery. Think about what Rat said to Mole. It, just let me remind you. So beautiful and strange and new. It has roused a longing in me that is pain, and nothing seems worthwhile but just to hear that sound once more and to go on listening to it for forever. See, what happens is the music is more beautiful than anything to the rat and therefore more important than anything. He reorders his life to pursue that beauty. That's what happens. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that following the word of God is mere duty that weighs you down? Or can you see that it is a beautiful, beautiful thing that allures you and invites you along? How you answer that question will determine a great amount about your growth in Christ. Look at verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not neglect your word. See, the psalmist at the end here, at the beginning, um, he goes to the word because he's, he's concerned, he's afraid. 
um, and he wants to be protected. He's concerned about his own heart. But now, the psalmist comes to the word, and the word captivates him. He, he, he wants to think and meditate on the scriptures. He wants to rehearse it time and again. Um, back to the boat. You notice in the story, rat could hear the piping, but mole couldn't. Clearer and clearer still, cried the rat joyously. Now you must hear it, mole. Oh, at last I see you do. Breathless and transfixed, the mole stopped rowing as the liquid run of that glad piping broke on him like a wave and caught him up and possessed him utterly. He saw the tears in his comrade's cheeks and he bowed his head and he understood. You know, as a pastor, I'm, I'm supposed to tell you to read your Bible. Yeah, I'm supposed to do that. Um, you know one thing that I hate? I hate that it can sound so easily like a dead religious duty. And I'm terribly frightened that for some of us, that's exactly what it is. When in actual fact, Psalm 119 says it's, it's way better than that, friends. Psalm 119 warns us. It says, yeah, this is a big deal. There is danger. Our hearts can lead us to destructive places. But Psalm 119 also, along with the warning, holds out this promise that the word of God can allure us, can attract us to Jesus Christ. And so I suppose the application for us is, is twofold, but they should be the same thing. One is to store up the word of God in your heart. Um, you know, there, there's no shortcut. Friends, read the scriptures. Meditate on the scriptures. Fill your mind with the truth of God's word, always looking through the word at Jesus Christ. But then at the same time, and don't let these be two different things, at the very same time, ask the Holy Spirit to show you Christ's beauty. Ask the Holy Spirit to allure you with his word. Ask the Holy Spirit to reach down into your desires, reshape them so that the word of God and Jesus Christ in the center of it becomes the animating delight of your soul. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom those secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. Make us want one thing, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.